the journey is finally complete. From the bottom to the top, Rangers are champions of Scotland. So much pressure on his shoulders. Not that you would ever guess it. A critical goal as Wickham try and try and chart away to an improbable second season in the championship. He's through the Hello and welcome to Hopeless Wonder Podcast with me, Adam Gipke and Andy McBride. And if you're watching live of us right now, come and say hello and make your thoughts known as we go along. So no Craig this week to open us up for 2022. However, we are blessed with our friend from the show. He's the LeBron James of Norwegian football. We welcome him back onto the pod. It's Josh Butler from these Football Times. I can see it really tickled him just then. But Happy New Year, Josh. How is life treating you? Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, yeah, very well. Quite busy, quite hectic, but um, excited to be on again. So thank you for having me. Uh, that's awesome. And for you to be donning that Roma shirt as well, it's uh, a treat to behold. But we'll also introduce Andy. So, Andy, I assume you were really disappointed at not making the last pod of 2021 with the end of year quiz. So much so that you took some frustration out on uh, some statue experts on BBC Bristol, I believe. So uh, I don't know if you could expand <laughs> a bit more on that. But more importantly, Andy, how you've been doing and Happy New Year to you too as well. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was feeling a little bit um, lacking of energy after having the uh, booster jab. Um so yeah it happens but i'd rather be jabbed than not <laughs> and then yeah i was just um obviously as happens live in bristol um there seems to be an awful lot of people who care more about a statue rather than actual human beings and that's where their priority lies but hey welcome <laughs> to uh 2022 so um yeah it's but other than that uh all good and happy to be back Good stuff, good stuff. Well, never dull moment with you, that's for sure. So anyway, since the pod went for its little Christmas break, the main stories that happened in football, we saw Paolo Sosa leave the Poland national side and take up a role at Flamingo in Brazil. So clearly he wasn't feeling the snow in Poland. Uh, Salernitana still subject to being sold. So we still don't know if they're going to be expelled from the uh, Serie A. And then we've still got Ferran Torres, who might be still a Barcelona player but it's subject to Barcelona actually freeing up some spends and whilst that's all still been happening Aaron Ramsey still can't get a game at Juventus but anyway we're going to talk about the big games that took place so um, with you guys I thought we'd start off by talking about what happened on Sunday night which was Chelsea and Liverpool so uh, yeah really big game in terms of like action packs I think it was obviously dominated by the Lukaku news but before we kind of speculate and talk about that, obviously, it does seem like there's a theme about that match being potentially the end of the title race for both of these clubs. Um, but there's a few topics that I wanted to discuss. One being, should Mane have been sent off within the first minute of the match? 
have we seen the contender of goal of the season with Kovacic's effort? And um, yeah, get your general thoughts on whether you think this is the end for either Chelsea and Liverpool in terms of trying to overhaul Man City. So um, yeah, if we start off with yourself, Josh, what did you make of that match? And uh, yeah, what did you make of those questions as well? Yeah, I suppose trying to put bias aside, because I really don't like Liverpool being a Man United fan. It was an entertaining game. And I genuinely thought when Liverpool went 2-0 up that it was going to be one of those games where they absolutely blew Chelsea away. Mm. Um, but it was it was weird and that it was only really for about 10 minutes that Liverpool were absolutely chaotic at the back and conceded two. And then that was really the end of their chances in the game. Um, but I think you're, you're pretty much right in that you can't afford to drop points anymore. Like mm. 10 years ago, if, if you lost two or three games in the first half of the season you could still be within touching distance of where it was at the top. But now, with City and Liverpool in the last two seasons, or three seasons, being as relentless as they are, it feels like if you drop points more than once, then realistically your chances are, are over. And I don't really see how Chelsea or Liverpool are going to catch City. They just look insurmountable to me. Mm. And Andy, did you feel like Liverpool over the last few games have been starting to lost their momentum because it certainly feels like um, if it's not certain players not pulling away it seems to be a few mistakes here and there so what have you made of this recent form from Liverpool? I think with Liverpool one of their problems and it's it's been a recurring one in the past few years is that they've played the same 11 week in week out mm. um, you know everybody can name Klopp's first choice 11 um, and when you know, in the case when they have injuries or when they have players out, out of form, they don't really have the personnel of equal quality. Like, for example, if, you know, Sibicast uh, for Liverpool isn't of the same quality as Andy yeah. Robertson, um, if Trent Alexander-Arnold gets injured, there isn't really an identical replacement. It will be, oh, let's just stick James Milner there or let's put Fabinho there. And, you know, that's not a long-term solution um mm. you know their their backups to their front three obviously you've got Diogo Yotta who to be fair has been a quality addition for them but you know Divock Origi gets another one with obviously with Mane off to the um Africa Cup of Nations as well so yeah I feel they do lack depth and um I think it, it stops them being able to rotate effectively whereas if you look at Manchester City they've got two top class players for every single position on the pitch um mm. and that's you know that's something that a lot of teams you know Liverpool don't have the finance and resources to be able to do that um, and that's why you find they put out weakened teams in a lot of the cup competitions to try and keep you know the Premier League and the Champions League teams fresh as possible Mm. What did you make then of uh, Tuchel's decision not to start with Lukaku? Because we might as well bring that topic straight in there because I thought it was quite a professional decision, you know, in that circumstance where obviously he doesn't want it to affect the team game as well as what his players potentially thought of Lukaku, regardless if they did think he was right in what he said. Obviously, I, I thought that was the bravest and best decision possible. Yeah, and I think um, it's always been interesting with uh, Chelsea in the past because player power has often um, 
taking effect at Chelsea. Mm. You know, they bombed Jose Mourinho out, they bombed Villas Boas out, uh, they bombed Frank Lampard out to a point. But I think with Tuchel, he, he's he won the Champions League last season. So I think you know he's got the backing from the board. Um, mm. He's got the trophies in the cabinet to go. You know, I am the boss. Um, you know, with, with that Lukaku thing, apparently. I was looking at some German commentators um, and apparently some of it was taken out of context, um, you know, in terms of what he said, um, mm. you know, obviously about you know, the main takeaways, but about him not, you know, Tuchel changed the system, changed the system and things like that. And he misses it to Milan and that kind of stuff. But, you know, to an extent, he would have known what he, he was signing up for uh, when he joined Chelsea. Um, mm. He know, you know, he should have. He would have known what sort of system Tuchel likes to play. I'm pretty sure Chelsea and their approach would have told him where he would fit into that system. And I think a lot of it is just trying to cover up the fact he's not been very good. Um, mm. I know you and Craig were saying, you know, he's turned into a world class striker, and you know, I never mm. quite bought into that hype because I'd seen him at Manchester United, um, and he wasn't. He wasn't fantastic. And, um, you know, for 100 million quid, what was it, like four league goals? That's not yeah. a great return for that kind of money. Uh, so I think it's also an easy decision to make as well. You know, if mm. the car crew probably banged in 20 goals in 20 games or something like that, maybe it might have been a harder decision. But it's probably a, ma- a matter of convenience. But, yeah, I think he, Tuchel's shown that he's got he's got the power in the squad. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got the power to drop in. Um, and they got a creditable result against Liverpool as well. Uh, a 2 2 draw against Liverpool is a good result. Um, mm. so yeah, I think that's that was quite a successful outcome. And you know, I have no doubt the Kharki will, will come back into the fold in the Premier League next week or the weekend upcoming and mm. he'll be back in the starting lineup. But yeah, it was just ill advised to be honest. Like, I'm surprised yeah. there was, I'm really surprised for a club the size of Chelsea or his, or his entourage were telling him, you know what. Maybe this is the best idea, you know, leave it to the end of the season, like or something like that. Um, yeah. It just outstands me. So it's just how bad people must be advised to be doing stuff like that. Definitely. And I have to agree, yeah, his form hasn't been brilliant of late. Um, definitely not the player that I've seen in an Inter Milan shirt, that's for sure. Um, but he did kind of I maybe allude to it a little bit in his interview for Sky Italia by saying the style doesn't kind of suit his game. But then, yeah, players these days have to just adapt to it. And Josh, I suppose, if I bring you into this, um, what did you make of Lukaku's comments? Being that it was three weeks previous, so it's probably just the timing that wasn't great here. But yeah, again, not the best kind of words when you're signing for supposedly your boyhood club. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I think the timing wasn't ideal. And I think Tuchel probably just wanted to make a, an example out of Lukaku by by dropping him. Um, but like Andy says, like if if he'd scored 20 goals already, you know, if he was in like Mo Salah form, mm. he'd probably got away with it. Um, but I don't think he's as important to the team as a lot of people think. Because, um, mm. I mean, like Chelsea, don't I don't really think have an undroppable forward. Like Kai Havertz is like a yeah. much of a muchness. Timo Werner, Kai Abandor, Lukaku for me has always been overrated. So I guess Tuchel was just saying that... Um, no one is undroppable in my team, which is fair enough, yeah. really. It's about time someone did that at Chelsea specifically. 
So I think broadly, it sounds like between the three of us, we are kind of conceding that both Liverpool and Chelsea don't really stand much of a chance of catching up City. But what do we think is the reasons, if I start off with yourself, Josh, as to what they can do to maybe break that monopoly? Because it seems like with both teams, it's just maybe one or two players that are missing potentially. Or am I reading it wrong? Potentially, it's, you know, something more deeper. What do you think it is? I think the only way you're going to break the monopoly of City winning the league is to spend more money than them, which is virtually impossible. Mm. Um, I mean, I know Chelsea are well-financed, but Liverpool aren't particularly well-financed. Like what Klopp managed to do with the finances that he's got. Um, I mean, I'm, when I say the finances he's got, like I'm, I'm not, they're not destitute, but they're not anywhere near as capable of spending money as United or City or Chelsea or even like Newcastle now. Um, so for Liverpool, I saw the other day, uh, Sam Maguire was saying on, on Twitter that really for FSG, Liverpool's own is the best that they can hope for. Now that they've sort of hit that peak where they won the league, uh, mm. is just as long as they get the top four, that's probably all that they can hope for because then they're not going to outspend Man City. And that's the yeah. thing. Like, M- Man City lost their best striker probably of all time, and yet they, mm. they got better. They went out and spent 100 million on Jack Grealish. So yeah. I, I don't really know how you can stop Man City. And as for Chelsea, I I don't know. I think there's something to be said for having a bit of continuity and longevity. As you can see with mm. City, they, they put Pep in charge, they gave him a black checkbook and they said, your task is to win the Champions League, which I know he hasn't done, but he's won the league repeat after repeat. And with Chelsea yeah. changing their managers every 18 months, yeah, they'll, they'll win the Champions League, they'll win the league here and there, but I don't really think they're going to assert any dominance in the way that City have. Mm. And Andy, do you share those sentiments? Yeah, I think with Manchester City, it's a combination of the amount of resources that they have, but they've also got the structure which allows them uh, to maximise maximize it. You know, mm. uh, Manchester United have spent obscene amounts of money um, over the past, you know, since Ferguson has left, and we haven't really got much to show for it, as I'm sure we'll discuss later. You know, mm. with Manchester City, they could buy £100,000 and and Jack Grealish, who they didn't even need, <laughs> you know, they need. I think they, I think with that, they kind of wanted Harry Kane, realized they couldn't get him, so they just thought, oh, sod it, we'll just get Jack Grealish. But it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, they could play, you know, De Bruyne, Foden, Jesus, yeah, pretty much three or four players in that false nine role. I think, you know, if Pep Guardiola could play with 11 center midfielders, he would. Um, <laughs> And again, you know, as I said earlier, they've got two world-class players for every position. Um, mm. You know, and Pep is generally speaking quite good at rotating. Um, mm. So yeah, it's difficult because if you look at the point totals required to win the Premier League, you know, as Josh said, 70, 80 points used to do it back, you know, in, in Fergie's day. Now you're looking at ninety points plus. Yeah. Um, you know, you're looking at you have to get 90 points to get top two. You're probably looking at about 85 plus to make sure mm. you get top four as well. And I think that's it. Just shows how big the gap between the top and the bottom is. Uh, but I just don't see where Manchester City are going to drop points because it's all well saying, yeah, you know, Liverpool could improve form and Chelsea could improve mm. their form, but. It's going like, okay, where, what three game, three or four games are Manchester City going to lose between now and the end of the season? And I don't see where those four games are coming from. And that, Mm. unfortunately, is why City will win the league. 
just widely just putting it out there do you think it will take maybe an injury crisis before we start maybe seeing them drop points i think maybe the injury crisis for you the other part of it is obviously with pep his methods are very intense and typically mm. he tends to like a three or four year cycle at clubs i think yeah. the only possible way that maybe things won't go so well obviously there's little bits of it you know with you know jack greenish and uh, phil foden having um ill-advised nights out <laughs> uh maybe there's a little bit of that might, which might cause a bit of trouble but even if they had four or five players injured um unless it's in defense i don't think there's really a huge drop in quality mm. Well, let's bring in Man or Man City, should I say, and the VAR that dominated the Arsenal match. Um, it was a close match, I have to say, despite uh, Arsenal's best efforts to screw it up at times, I felt. Um, and yeah, uh, to be fair, you know, that's probably the closest game that Man City have had at losing potential or dropping points. Um, but yeah, let's start off with yourself, Andy. What did you make of Arsenal's approach and um, how good were Arsenal and equally how bad were Man City for this match? I think um, Arsenal put in a good performance for what, 85 minutes or so of it. So they've done quite well. Um, you know, they have, I think um, Arteta's found a group of players that he has faith in. Um, mm. You know, because obviously he's had his own striker problems with the uh, Obama Yang situation. Uh, but I think, especially, um, you know, in defensive midfield, they've got a few more, they're starting to get a few more characters in because one of the main criticisms everybody's had on Arsenal in a few years is the lack of leadership on the pitch. I think, as much as I absolutely slated the 30 odd million quid they spent on Aaron Ramsdale, he's actually been really, really good for them. And he gives them a little bit of um, what they need at the back. Unfortunately, Arsenal being Arsenal, they're still prone to just things that make no sense. Um, you know, with Gabriel, um, you know, scuffing the penalty spot, getting mm. yellow, and then getting yourself another yellow. It's just really stupid stuff um, that they keep doing, which keeps making them fall apart. Like, they're nearly there. I think they've nearly got a team and a culture which will allow them to start competing for the top four, certainly more than they have done in the past few years. But, you know, with Manchester City, even if they're having a bad game, they have, you know, unfortunately got the quality of players to get themselves back into it. Mm. Josh, let's bring you in then. So those VAR decisions were the cream topic for BT uh, when they were talking about it after the match. Um what did you make of those decisions? And more importantly, um, did you think they got it right? Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't watch the City Arsenal game. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. It's Man City, so <laughs> I only watched it by <laughs> Fair enough. What about you then, Andy? Did you see those decisions? I saw I saw the highlights. I mean, the first one, it's, it's just one of those 50-50s. Uh, on the one hand, Edison didn't really get near the ball, but then... You know, Smith Rowe kind of put his foot into his a little mm. bit. You're like, well, you could have given it either way. So I can understand why, you know, it wasn't given. Um, yeah. It's just, I think maybe the thing from Arsenal fan, for the Arsenal fans' point of view is that, you know, similar decisions do did go the way in Manchester City. And, you know, oh, I was in a bit of a moody mood on Saturday. But, you know, I think it is frustrating sometimes 
with refereeing in general, the lack of consistency, um, mm. you know, the standard of refereeing in England is absolutely diabolical. Um, you know, as Craig will attest, it's even worse in Scotland. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but it is, it is really, really bad. And, you know, you look at European games and they utilise VAR so much better than they do over mm. here. It's just kind of like, you've got VAR, you can go to a screen, you can look at what's going on uh, and make informed decisions. And when they're not doing that, it can be a bit frustrating. Do you think then the wider question should be is how VAR is used? Because it seems to be that inconsistency where refs in the Premier League are reliant on the people at St. George's Park to kind of tell them what is happening. Yeah. And this is why we're having this division around this particular match, for example, where VAR said, look at this, but they didn't actually look at the other one because they felt during the motion. And I don't know about you guys as well, whether you feel like VAR, when they slow down a motion of play, you can make it look like that it's a foul when maybe in real time you would never give it as well. So again, it's one of those, it's 50-50 sometimes because I see the benefit of VAR, but I wonder sometimes the amount of times you slow it down, you can make it look like that it was deliberate, for example. So yeah, Andy, what, what's your thoughts on that? I think... I think we just need to um, give the power to the referees a little bit, make mm. them take ownership of it. You know, if a referee wants to go up to the computer screen and go, right, can you play it in real time? Okay, now play it in slow motion or play it from this angle, play it from that angle. You know, When you watch a goal replay on Sky Sports, you can see it from about 15 different angles and different speeds. <laughs> referees should have that available to them as well. Mm. You know, because they can only see what is in front of them. They don't, you know, there might be players in the way, but they don't know what maybe what maybe what the linesman's point of view was, or maybe what the view was behind the goal. And you now I've always been of the view that you know, one, if you're you should be given the resources to do your job, because then the onus is on you to actually make the right decision. I still mm. think you know they should take a bit more responsibility because the screen is there to use and they're not using it yeah. all the time. You know, you can't, you either go with use the screen at all times or don't. Um, yeah, like I say, inconsistency is always, I think, everybody's pet hate when it comes to the Premier League. You know, not every decision they make is a bad one. Um, it's just, unfortunately, what you see every single week is decisions that were called in one game and not in another. Um, and that's why people get irritated. You know, a red card challenge might be a red card challenge, but just but because it wasn't given in a certain game, that's why people feel aggrieved. That's it. Uh, Josh, what about you? What, what's your views on VAR? And I suppose Andy's made a really good point about refereeing standards. I mean, I've seen so many ideas floating around about maybe getting foreign referees to like ref in the premiership. I don't know if that's the right move. But equally, there has to be something in the deep roots of like refereeing where we can get better quality of referees coming through the system. Because I've seen it in League One, even Championship, the level that is there isn't even Premier League standards. And if anything, it's the Premier League ma um, refs that tend to flood down because they're that bad. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think it's probably twofold. One is that I think the vagary of football rules doesn't help. And I always keep bringing it back to rugby. 
where like you tackle someone above the race, it's a foul, and it's really obvious to see if it's a foul. And they can use their video assistant referee, whatever they call it in rugby, to see that someone has been tackled above the waist, and that's just a foul. Whereas like in football, if you're debating about who's going to get a red card and they say oh, he's endangering the opponent, well, that's debatable as to whether or not he's been endangered or not. Was there intent? Did he have his studs showing? How far up the leg was he? Was his leg planted or not? Like all these different variables yeah. that mean that you could argue one way or the other that it's a red card or not. And I don't think that helps referees. And the whole thing with um, the like the flexibility of our rules as well in that, what was it, two seasons ago, if there was a handball accidental or not in the build-up to a goal, it got ruled out. Whereas now, mm. if there's a handball accidental or not in the build-up to the goal, it's not ruled out. But if it comes off the hand accidental or not in the act of scoring a goal, it's ruled out. Like So that rule has changed within two years. So if we had a fixed set of rules for a start that were easy to interpret, it would make refereeing a lot easier. And secondly, and like this has been something I've said since I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old if referees actually played football they'd be able to understand the game uh, there are so many referees i was listening to on five live the other day they were talking about how the referees association so many of them have gone into refereeing at like the age of 16 because they didn't want to play football and it's like how can you referee a sport you've never played because like i know that if i'm running at full speed and someone bumps into me like i'm a fairly big guy i could ride the tackle i'd be all right but someone else who's maybe a bit smaller than me that's running at full speed that gets clipped might go down. It doesn't mean he's dived or I've been honest. It just means that I'm heavier than that guy, so I didn't go down. And like for referees, being able to interpret those moments, having never played the sport, must be really difficult to look at a foul and go, was that enough force to knock him over or has he dived? Has he dived? Um, so yeah, I think if you could address those two issues, having a more clear uh, and fundamental set of rules and actually trained referees that had played football whether that's ex-pros that become referees or whether that's mm. mandatory i don't know making referees having played to a certain level for a certain number of time i don't know don't know how you can enforce that mm. but yeah they need to have a better understanding of football to be able to actually referee it in my opinion right well let's get us into the topic that you guys have been waiting for and this is man united so uh i'm gonna leave it with a really open question and say is there a toxic atmosphere at man united and this is based on the comments that luke shaw said after the wolves game which yeah he felt like the team weren't together they clearly have a disliking around ragnick's techniques at the moment so a lot of people uh been moaning about the fact that they've been training in the dark which makes no sense at all because of thing in manchester it gets dark after 2 p.m so yeah it's <laughs> yeah. just one of those weird things but you know when you look at it from an outsider point of view like myself you look at it it's five games unbeaten up until the recent defeat granted the newcastle result wasn't great um but we have to remind ourselves that ragnick has been bought in as a consultant he's not a full-term replacement i appreciate he's there to the end of the season unlike uh, the melts at talk sport that seems to be alluding to the fact that he's some sort of replacement at man united josh i let's start off with yourself i know you're you've not been a big fan of ragnick and uh, in particular his early start but do you think man united highlighted something that you feared was wrong at the club yeah i think so like i wasn't overly enthusiastic about rang nick but i think part of that was like an unwavering loyalty to ollie and also part of it was a realization that there's perhaps a bigger problem at united that goes beyond the manager because i didn't mm. really feel like i mean i was at old trafford when we got pumped by liverpool 
and that was the worst game of football I've ever seen United play. And even then, people didn't really turn on Ollie. Like he's got a lot of loyalty from proper Man yeah. United fans. Um, so I kind of thought uh, we should have just probably left him at the end of the season. He probably has got as far as he can with this group of players and with the methods and the ideas that he implements. But sacking him mid-season to sort of flirt with Conte and then not go with Conte and go, well, we're just going to stick Ralph Ranginick in as a six-month mm. sort of stopgap. I mean, the guy has managed, what is it, like, is it one year out of the last nine he's actually been a football manager? Most of the time he's like a consultant mm. or, or what yeah. have you. So I, I don't didn't really see the logic behind it. And I think all it's done is like serve to highlight how chaotic and just unproductive Manchester United are at the moment because... Now you're getting lots of leaked stories about player unrest and clicks forming and all this sort of thing. Um, and I don't really, well, I say I don't know what the answer is, but I mean, getting rid of Ed Woodward for a start, having an actual <laughs> director of football might help. Um, but I, I, yeah, I I guess Rangnick's going to just sort of steady the ship, so to speak, until um, the end of the season. But I don't really see what's going to happen with us appointing another manager. I don't really know who's out there that would want to come to United at this current mm. time anyway, given that we're a big club, yes, but that doesn't really mean anything when we're such a dysfunctional big club mm. that are arguably, I wouldn't say competing with Man City and Liverpool, more like we're just sort of following in their wake <laughs> and they're two of the best clubs in the world at the moment. So I, I don't really see how it gets better for Man United before it gets worse for other people. Mm. Andy, I do get this feeling that you're going now potentially to the end of season with Ragnick. Does that make it harder to attract a manager like a Ten Hag to kind of come over and try and take over the club and maybe get his philosophy? Because it almost feels like that window of opportunity where you could have brought like a Conte or, Rag or Ten Hag, for example, could have been better than getting Ragnick in. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I think... All of this circumstance is just the continued bad decision-making of the mm. Manchester United ownership and executive leadership. Um, you know, I was of a view that if it weren't entirely happy with what Oli was doing, they could have feasibly sacked him after the Europa League final and they probably mm. wouldn't have been, you know, obviously it would have been sad to see a club legend go, but they would have... Um, been justified in doing it and then what has happened is that things have got really bad really quickly and they they and it's clearly shown we don't have a contingency plan because i think um part of the argument against conte apparently was that he would be too demanding of the board and that's <laughs> not and unfortunately that wouldn't go down well especially with the glazers yeah uh, because he would demand perfection left right and center um, I think for what I've seen, you know, from people that are close to the club, um, and from sources, you know, from the journalists at The Athletic and The Guardian, the general wisdom appears to be that ten is out of Ten Hag and Pochettino. Um, mm. And, you know, I can see the arguments for it. They both play, you know, what you would call a defined style of football. Um, but unfortunately, Manchester United are left with a group of players that are not worth the money that they're being paid. But they work, they work, they're not worth the transfer fees they were paid for. They're not worth the money that they're on uh, because of their accounting methods of um, you know, 
what's commonly understood is that Ed Woodward was in favour of giving players extensions to their deals because it would look good on a balance sheet. Um, mm. But what he failed to realise is that when you give, you know, I don't know, Eric Bailly a free four-year extension for somebody who plays 50 games a season, and then wonder why, one, he's unhappy he's not playing any games, two, you can't <laughs> move them on. Um, and that is the same, unfortunately, for a lot of players. United are awful at moving on players when they should. Awful. Mm. I think a stat came out the other day. I can't remember where it was from because I'd like to credit it. But apparently they've only sold, what was it, four or five players above £10 million since Alex <laughs> Ferguson has left. Uh, so, you know, you've got the likes, obviously, Angel Di Maria, Romney Lukaku, they're like the only sort of really big sales and obviously the 25 million pound they got for Dan James. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, they don't really make big sales. Um, you know, Pogba's wanted to leave for about four years <laughs> at least. Um, they could have moved him on, you know. Jesse Lingard should have been moved on in the summer, Anthony Marshall yeah. should have been moved on probably two or three years ago. You know, yeah. as much as he's had some really good moments. Um, over the years, it's just, um, and now you've got, you know, whether it's true or not, anything from I've heard six to 17 players are unhappy at Manchester United <laughs> over the past couple of days. What is true is probably maybe somewhere in the middle, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but the United need to get rid of nine or 10 players and then replace them, some of it with youth prospects and some of it with actual first team signings. And I don't think they've got the capability at board level to do it. And that's always that's always my main concern. Mm. So if we stay with yourself, Andy, what did you make of the performance on Monday? Um, because we did see Phil Jones come into the squad. And we did have this question from the in the 11 pod asking us, do we see Phil Jones in an England top this summer or potentially in Qatar? What's your thoughts? Well, you know what? I saw, so I think I saw a reminder that Phil Jones actually started England's last World Cup match. Uh, <laughs> God. And I was like, did he? Oh. <laughs> and um, I was like, yeah. You know, Phil Jones has been horrifically unlucky with injuries. He does get slated mm. a lot. He is a very gifable character, if you like, you know, with the funny faces he's made, you know, with his head first on the floor, (laughs) trying to block shots and stuff like that. But considering he'd not played a single game of professional football in two years, um, for him to come in and be the best defender on the pitch um, was an outstanding effort. You know, if you Mm. could be absolutely picky, you know, maybe his header was a little bit soft, that, that eventually fell yeah. to Richard Matidio, but really there should be somebody else covering that. Um, yeah. Because if you give the Wolves lads, you know, shots at the edge of the area, they're going to mm. hit them. Um, you know, and I think what's also quite um, indicative of United's worries is that never as Matidio would walk into the United fit midfield and start. Yeah. There is there is no question about that. I'm sure Josh agrees as well. Um, I would take Nevers in that midfield 100%. Just go his 30 million. Thank you very much. Uh, but they played us off the park. Uh, and what was frustrating is that United couldn't put three or four passes together. 
Like mm. you don't need a world, you shouldn't need a world class coach to turn around and tell you pass it to the bloke in red. Yeah, <laughs> and yet they found that exceptionally difficult to do. Yeah, you know, they're professional footballers that can't string three or four passes together. Like how many managers are they going to throw under the bus before they start mm. taking responsibility for themselves? Um, you know, and I think they keep trying to adapt to playing with Ronaldo. Um, you know, I was I was up at like five AM the other morning. I think for both on pitch reasons and off the pitch reasons, if I was a Manchester United director, I'd go, you know what, you've had a year, it's been nice, mm. off you go. Um, I think that would be a start. Um, and you know, Harry Maguire as captain, I think, is looking woefully inadequate week by week. Because uh, he's not a leadership character, and you know you can be a leader in two ways. You can either be a, a Roy Keane leader, in which you set an example by telling people where to go, setting the standards in training and things like that, or you have different types of leaders um, who are the best player on the pitch. So they lead mm. by being better than everybody else. They lead by being an example in a playing sense, and that's what gives them the respect. Harry Maguire is neither of those unfortunately, at the mm. moment. And they've got too many players like him that are out of form uh, yeah. and no, no quality to replace them. So, yeah, I think the players have got a lot to ask themselves. Like, you know, how is Phil Jones? How have we got to a position where Phil Jones plays after two years? He's the only one who looks like he gives a shit. And two was our best player. That shouldn't be happening. Yeah. And Josh, are you much of the same opinion as well? Uh, yeah, largely so. I just think, um, mm. I just I had to find it baffling we spend so much money on footballers and don't really have any good ones. <laughs> I don't know how it's <laughs> yeah. come, come to that point. Yeah, I agree with Andy. We've we've tried to implement this sort of um, free-flowing, very fast counter-attacking style under Oli, which worked, Like especially mm. with people like Greenwood and Rashford. And then we bought Ronaldo. I mean, I... Yeah. The more and more I think about it, I think it was possibly one of the best sort of bait and switches I've ever seen by Man City in that they went, we're going to take Ronaldo. And Man United fans had a meltdown. Edward was like, just fucking throw money at him until he signs for us. And the City have been like, you're lumped with a 37-year-old who won't run now. And we're like, mm, yeah, I think we are, aren't we? I mean, I love mm. Ronaldo, the footballer, but um, I, I, I know he's pulled us out of the mud in the Champions League a couple of times, but goes missing for like 95% of a game usually. Um, mm. And we don't have the players. Like when he was a youngster at United, he could go missing if he wanted to because we had 10 other players on the pitch of which probably two or three were world-class. The rest were all, you know, excellent footballers. Now we don't have that. Like if, if Ronaldo goes missing, Fred's not going to do his dirty work for him or Scott mm. McTominay is not going to do his dirty work for him. Um, and I just think as well, like, I don't know. Sometimes it's a bit of a muddled identity with United. I don't really know what we're trying to go for. We we buy people like Alex Tellez, who's a very attacking left back, and then don't play him. And then we play Luke Shaw, who has been better in the last couple of games and had a really good year last year. And you think, yeah. right, okay, so we want fullbacks at attack. And on the other side, we've got Aaron Wambasaka, who <laughs> genuinely, for the life of me, the one good thing he is, you know, one thing he excels at is tackling a football. But like, most of the time, the reason he has to go for those last-ditch tackles are because he's been caught out of position or he's been ball-watching mm. and lost his man. 
So I can see why Dallow's starting over him. And I don't know, it's just every year I look at United squad and I think United fans around England and around the world, we add a player to our squad and we're like, we can challenge now. And then within like three or four months, we're like, no, I think the summary here is that it's a combination of transfer policies that clearly just don't work together as a team. That's where it's going wrong. Um, Main thing I wanted to ask you, though, Josh, and I'll go to you, Andy, as well. What have we made of the form of Bruno Fernandes? Because, yeah, since Ragnick's been brought in, I haven't heard from him. And it's a bit worrying because he used to be the guy that got you guys ticking. Yeah, I think this shift to 4-2-2-2, which he seems to favour, doesn't really fit Bruno Fernandes in anywhere. Um, Mm. Because obviously he's not going to play as one of those midfield two. And then the two further forward and not quite wingers, not quite attacking midfielders. And Bruno Fernandes doesn't really have a role. Because he's just... he's. He's not a classic number 10, like a Totti or a Baggio, but his his preferred mm. role is that free role in behind the striker. And when you're playing two up front, he doesn't really have anywhere to go. Um, so I don't know. I would be... I think Ralph Rangnick is, has realised that, you know, Ronaldo doesn't do enough on his own, mm. but Cavani will do double the amount of running up yeah. front. Although if he pairs him with someone like Greenwood, who will move a lot. Um, yeah. And therefore, that doesn't really leave any space for Bruno, but I don't really care. I'd be just putting Bruno in at number 10 and building the rest of the team around him because he's by far and away our best player, like by far and away. And it really annoys me on Twitter that there's this like growing following now of people that are rewriting history saying that Bruno Fernandes is shit and a lot of them are Man United fans. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really get how you come to that conclusion when we've been decent but not great the last couple of years and it's all because of him, no one else. He's been our best player considerably. So I, I give him so mm. much slack. He could not score for the next 20 games and I defend him to the hill. <laughs> I imagine it's just because he's not scoring points on fantasy football. That's probably why they don't <laughs> like him. But yeah, that's my guess. Um, <laughs> what about you, Andy? What's your thoughts on Fernandes? Yeah, he's obviously not been you know at his absolute peak this season. Uh, but then you know, I did feel there was games last season where he was perhaps overplayed a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, when you've when he plays 90 minutes every single game, week in, week out, it does take a toll, if not physically, but certainly mentally. Uh, I think maybe that plays a part in it. Um, and again, it goes down to the fact that there isn't anybody of Bruno's profile or quality that could come in and replace him. Um, you know, the Donny van der Beek thing, obviously, Radnick's now come in and also decided that Donny van der Beek just isn't it, <laughs> which makes yeah. you wonder why he was bought in the first place. Because uh, obviously, what is it? You know, two per- two permanent managers at an interim have all decided that he's not. He can't give mm. United what they, what he needs. Um, so yeah, and I think you know, if it was me at the moment, I would. You know, if there are players out there that don't want to play for the club, I would drop them. You know. I'd rather, if we're going to go down the route of uh, a big overhaul, I'd rather drop the players that don't want to be there. You know, for example, like you know, like Paul Pogba and Jesse Lingard, they shouldn't play another minute for Manchester United if yeah. they don't want to be there. Uh, you know, play the likes of you know Alanga or Hannibal Megbury, you know, a few of the other lads um, who've been doing quite well um, mm. in the youth setup. Because uh, I think Manchester United fans could get on board with that. You know, if we got rid of the toxic, you know, 
um, atmosphere, the, the personnel's contributing to it. I played a few youngsters. All right, maybe some results won't go our way. But I think what a lot of Manchester United fans are experiencing is that it's hard to like a group of players that you don't feel putting in 100% mm. and giving everything to the club. Um, and that's the impression, and that's the impression I do get sometimes watching them. You know, little things like with body language and stuff like that. And I go, are you really giving it your all, or are you one hundred percent focused on Manchester United? Uh, you know, they should be busting their balls to press the permanent coach that will come in because mm. you know they obviously know that Ragnit's going upstairs. So it's not like he's disappearing yeah. into the ether never to be seen again. So, you know, he's going to have an influence one way or the other as to what happens going forward. Um, but, yeah, it's just, like I said, I think we're just paying for an awful lot of bad decisions which are coming to roost at the moment. Um, mm. And I've been guilty of, you know, a few players have come in and I've gone, yeah, we're going to do really well this year because I'm, I'm a relentless optimist. I like being optimistic and go, yes, we could do this. At the start of every season, I'm like, yes, we're going to win some trophies. We're going to get to the final of this. We could win the league this season. Um, and then a few months later, reality kicks. You know, it's not with Sancho as well. You know, mm. I don't understand that we've chased this guy for two years and then don't have an obvious plan of where he's going to fit into the side what players he'll work well with or what players you might need to bring in to work well with him. Yeah. There's been no forward planning there at all. Um, You know, that's why so much of Manchester United just doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it for the rest of the season as well, why it doesn't make any sense as well. But um, before we kind of leave the games that did take place, I thought we'd bring up this really interesting question from our previous guest, Jeremy McGann. And um, he just wanted to ask our thoughts on Watford preventing the African players going to the AFCON. So we saw, obviously, Dennis being prevented from joining Nigeria. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of a weird one. And I think it was soured by the comments that uh, Seb Haller had recently from the press asking what he'd prefer to do, whether he wanted to represent his country, uh, was it Cameroon, instead of being with Ajax. And he said, well, it's an honour to be at the AFCON. You know, it's a bit like every European player going for the European Championship. Um, but if we start off with yourself, Andy, this is a bit of a different situation. We've got a club here that's preventing a player from joining his nation based on the fact that they're desperate for that player to really turn out for them. So what's your thoughts on that? I could answer, yeah, I mean, I guess it's two schools of thought with it. So when I went into the Dennis situation, apparently what the um, the teams competing in AFCON were meant to do were notify like a list of like 40-odd players where they go, right, we're going to, it's a high chance you're going to be called up to AFCON, you know, expect the call and prepare for it. Um and apparently they didn't submit that paperwork in time. There was a change in coach and, you know, that it's all gone mm. a little bit perfect. But uh, I think I feel that's just a convenient excuse because it's not like the AFCON's a new competition that Kate, that's just said its first edition this year. It's been going on for years, you mm. know, for years. It's been played, it's played in winter because in most places in Africa are not an expert on geography, but it's really, really hot there. That's why they're having a winter 
World Cup in Qatar because <laughs> it's That's really it. damn hot um, and you can't play it in the summer because it's dangerous for the players to be doing it. So that's why it's mm. held in winter. You know, it's not Africa's fault that the European season is held, is continuing um, and they shouldn't have to you know, change their the way they do things just to suit European countries. And there is quite a lot of, um, I think, snobbery, I think it's fair to say, behind it. Uh, Because, you know, Klopp has been quite demeaning in the past to uh, the African Cup of Nations and his existence. And, you know, the general view, especially in the Premier League, and even the attitude of fans as well, that it's just a massive inconvenience. Um, Mm. But I'm sorry, but if you... If you sign, you know, if you sign a player from that region who's the best in his position, he's going to get called up to play international football and you have to deal with it. Um, mm. You know, and I think a lot of the undertones from, you know, the media and fans are things that have been quite unpleasant because, you know, two Africans, this is just as important as it is, you know, for England yeah. in the Euros. It is their flagship tournament. You know, it is just as much of an honour to play for Nigeria as it is for England. There is no mm. difference whatsoever. Um, and, yeah, I think clubs should respect that a little bit more. I think, you know, the Premier League should probably come out and say, you know, right, this competition is starting on this date. If a player gets called up for it, he's got to play. Mm. Um, you know, just be a bit more hardcore about Because you wouldn't... Let's say I don't know. I mean, there's there's a Winter World Cup that's going to be Qatar. Yeah, not a you can guarantee not a single <laughs> club is going to go. I'm sorry, you shouldn't go. You should go to the World Cup because it's going to interfere with our season. Can do you see that happening? No. Yeah. <laughs> and then I rest my case of that one. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Josh, um, I think it was really summed up nicely by Ian Wright, where he kind of had his little rant about. The lack of respect that uh, I think it's just generally people have about AFCON. We know it happens, as Andy alluded to, every kind of January, February period in the uh, calendar. So, yeah, is it just the fact that people lack respect for other football tournaments around the world, which is why we're seeing this kind of take place right now? Yeah, I think that's probably got something to do with it. But I guess also to play devil's advocate for a moment, the club's pay the players wages so technically they're the ones that get the say on i mean they don't often exercise that right granted like i suspect they wouldn't exercise it for a european championship or a world cup like you say so there should be no reason why they exercise it for the afcon um Hmm. but i certainly remember growing up as a kid i absolutely loathed it when David Beckham and Wayne Rooney were forced to go to the World Cup and the Euros with injuries, I was like, no, they're Man yeah. United players first, England players second. If they're injured, they don't go. Um, mm. But that's because I've always just been club over country. Um, yeah. But like I say, if that was applied across the board and teams were like, no, you're not going to the World Cup or you're not going to the Euros because we pay your wages and we need you and you've got a contract with us, not with your country, then I'd get it. But I think it's just the fact that people are just kind of, it's only the AFCON, it's the middle of our season. Um, But it's weird because I imagine from a legal precedent, they're quite entitled to do it though, because I imagine Watford would make the argument, we pay his wages, we pay his insurance, we, if it not own the player, but, you know, he works Mm. for us. So it's up to us whether we want to release him for 
an alternative um, like bit of work effectively. Um, but yeah, I can see that AFCON does get shit on a bit, whereas other tournaments wouldn't necessarily. Um, mm. I think we know why that is because there's still some discrimination around. I was going to say, like, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying, Josh, that, you know, the clubs aren't also the ones mm. that play the players. And, you know, like you, England have always had a habit of taking injured players to yeah. the World Cup rather than have the ball just to take somebody else. But then when you sign a player, especially in the Premier League, you know, you sign a player in the knowledge that if they're the best in their position, there's a high probability they're going to play international football. So mm-hmm. that's fact that's that's factored into the decision making of whether to sign a player. Um, you yeah. know, it's not like they signed a player and didn't know he's Nigerian or something like that. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? It's just like they know what they're getting. <laughs> maybe they should do what they have, maybe I don't know, in cricket and rugby, I think, but they have like you have your contract with your club. <coughs> And then you have a centralised contract with your country. So maybe if, I don't know, football clubs weren't footing the cost for a player on the weeks they're playing international duty and that was written into contracts, maybe that's a way around it. But I'm not a legal expert or a contract expert. I'm just hypothesising as to maybe what they could do, have it like written somewhere. Cool. If you want to play international football for your country, that's fine. You don't get paid. If you want to get paid, negotiate that with your country. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it the Welsh Rugby Association bar rugby players? Welsh rugby players from is it playing abroad? Oh, it's certainly it's playing England, outside of Wales. I know England. Yeah. Play, I think in England you can't play abroad. So I think in Wales you have to play in Wales. I'm in Wales, stuck, which sucks. Sorry. Wales. To me, that seems very backwards as a football fan. But like, Wales uh, rugby is different to us, isn't it? Where the yeah. international calendar takes precedence over the club calendar. Um, yeah. It, I imagine it's a fascinating tug of war because, like, like you say, but I guess that's maybe just a factor you have to consider when you sign an African player. That, like you say, if 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 they're going to end up in the Premier League, there's a good chance they are an elite footballer. Therefore, they will get called up during Afcon. Um, yeah. But then, I suppose someone like Liverpool could cope with missing Mane or Salah better than Watford can because that's why Watford are kicking up a fuss because they're going two of our best players are leaving for the next yeah. potential four or five weeks whereas Liverpool have been well apart from a couple of Klopp's comments but have been largely okay with the fact that they're going to be without Salah and um, and Mane because they've got a deeper squad that's it right let's move on I thought we'd uh, talk about some transfer window shenanigans so um, I have to say I didn't anticipate there to be a lot of movement but we've already had a lot of speculation and moves so we've already seen the likes of Kasper Kozlowski move from Pogonshechin to Brighton he's immediately been loaned to the sister club which is Royal Union Sint Galice which I've never heard of in my life we also saw <laughs> Nathan Patterson leave his beloved race so the uh, Scottish Cafu joining Everton and um, more bad news for uh, Craig when he comes back on the pod potentially it seems like Newcastle are after Alfredo Morelos so they're going to test him with a 28 million bid but we did have this question from Mon Sportif which is a podcast and they asked us despite the incoming spending spree from Newcastle can they realistically beat the drop so if I start off with yourself, Josh, it does seem like uh, it's pretty much sealed that they're going to get Creer in Trippier. 
Um, if they do get Alfredo Morales, um, do you think that's enough to keep them up potentially? No. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> I mean, Kieran Trippier is a, a, a good footballer and I think he's 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 maligned a little bit too much. Um, so he's he's mm. definite upgrade for them. Morelles, I mean he's played in the Scottish League, which I'm I'm not I don't think is the best standard of football, so I can't see what he's going to bring to Newcastle if he did join. Um but no, I, I don't. I think they'll have a hard time convincing footballers to come, given the predicament they're in, where they are. I mean, they're largely one of. The, I mean, they're not Norwich. Norwich, I would say, are, are flat out the worst team in the league. Yeah. But that next step up of the ones that are really struggling, Newcastle are in that zone. Um, so even though they've got all this money to spend, I don't know if they're going to be able to attract the caliber of players that are going to keep them up, especially because now it's not like you're ten games in and you've still got. 28 games to save your season we're almost halfway through now um so no i i i still think they're gonna go down um mm. i think them norwich and probably watford um so i i mean unless they're gonna like bring in so, you know someone like mbappe and holland and you know, <laughs> overhaul maybe, maybe 10 years time on fantasy football but maybe not this season yeah yeah now i did I, hear I, rumors of them getting potentially aaron ramsey as well as Gigi vinardum because of that past with newcastle and the fact that he's available on a loan for the rest of the season from psg which could be interesting. I don't know if that's necessarily enough because I think they actually need someone defensively minded like a centre-back. This is where I would have gone with Phil Jones if he wasn't playing for Man United. I would have thought that would be a great kind of move for Phil Jones' career as well. But, I mean, we were speculating, I think, a few months ago about the likes of Jesse Lingard. That would be a good fit as yeah. well, potentially. You know, go there for loans. Um, but again, I just for me, I think it's the Eddie Howe style of football very attacking minded and I appreciate recently they grounded out that result against Man United but yeah I think they it just kind of showed that they just need something more in terms of depth of quality um, because that is largely a championship team isn't it yeah, yeah they've and got it, a championship squad definitely yeah. and what also baffled me was when they appointed Eddie Howe and then he's He's made sure that Ryan Fraser and Callum Wilson play virtually every game now. I'm like, but those are two mm. of the players that got you relegated with Bournemouth. Why would it be any different with Newcastle in a worse team? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And like you say, he he plays quite progressive football for a manager that was largely spent in the bottom half of the table with Bournemouth. Like, Bournemouth played mm. attractive football, but they almost a bit like not in the style of play like Leeds, but they would try and play expansive football, but you'd know three or four times a season they'd get absolutely spanked by one of the top teams. And usually for Bournemouth, it was Man City that would like pump five or six past them. Mm. And I don't think he can afford to take, adopt that approach at Newcastle where they, they really cannot get by with, with taking a hammering off someone. They, they need to keep it as solid and as tight at the back as possible. And unfortunately, that's where their weakest players are really, that like they don't, they don't really have any decent centre halves. Like Kieran Clark, I mean that goal the other week where he just decided he was going to duck under the ball because he <laughs> heard a phantom shout from Dubravka. And like um, Jamal Lascelles is is just like one of those centre backs that just instead of you know how like Virgil Van Dijk never looks like he's ever under any duress or effort. Like he makes everything yeah. look so easy. Jamal Lascelles makes the simplest things look like an absolute burden. <laughs> so just yeah, I. 
I think I think they need to overhaul their entire squad if they were to have any stand any chance of staying up. I really don't think they they're going to at all. Andy, a really left field uh, transfer that I did see take place was Axel Tanzebi to Napoli, uh, recalled from Aston Villa and going back to or going on loan to Napoli, should I say? Uh, but alongside that, we had uh, Ainsley Maitland Niles also going to Roma. What, what do you make of those two moves? I think uh, I think it just shows that you know moving moving abroad for English players is an option now. Um, you know, I think generally speaking, there's always an expectation of stay in England and go to another club in the Premier League. But at the same time, you know, why would you want to go to, I don't know, like a Norwich or something where you could go to Napoli or Roma and play for clubs with big support, competing at the top end of the table, you know, the top half at least. Why not? Obviously, with Juan Zebe, um, you know, whether he's United quality, I don't think he's quite there, but I think Manchester United want him to get to get him want to get him playing regular first team football. Um, you know, I've, I've not seen enough of Napoli to know whether he'll get into their team and play regular or not. So I don't know. Um, mm. But I mean, if to make the Nars, I know he's had a bit of. Um, I think at the end of the last transfer window, he kicked up a little bit of a fuss, and I don't think he's in the good graces of Mikel Arteta. So I think that would be a good move for him. Going to a Jose Mourinho squad. How that will work, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> we'll see. But I think, obviously, with the new touch of the Newcastle situation, is the problem that they've got is um, a little bit of what happens when Manchester City got took over. Everybody knows they they've got money. That's the players. Mm. That's the club. So a player that might be that might cost ten million pounds will cost Newcastle thirty. You know, mm. a player that will probably realistically get maybe 50k a week. You go, oh, it's Newcastle. I could ask for 150k, and that's what they're going to have to deal with. Is it's not going to be easy for them to get the quality of player that they need for a reasonable price. Um, and yeah, again, it's convincing players to go up there. Um, yeah. You know, they're going to have to include a lot of relegation clauses. You know, if they do get relegated, a lot of these players are going to want to stick around you know I was looking mm. at the 11 that they put out against Manchester United I think the only one that I may be Premier League quality is obviously got you know Alisson Maximan who you know is yeah. really really good player and I think if he gets mm. relegated he will get picked up by you know a top six club potentially Callum Wilson's when he's fit but that's almost never um if we look at their midfield like Sean Longstaff John Joe Shelby you know they're not Premier League quality players um, in defence, Fabian Shah, I think, or Shah, um had a good, you know, he's quite good for Switzerland and quite good on the ball, maybe Premier quality, but yeah, they need like eight or nine players and they're not going to get those in January. Um, mm. I think they will go for that sort of marquee attacking signing. You know, I think they will get, the, I think they will do something a bit, you know, remember when Rubinio rocked up at Manchester yeah. City? It it won't be a signing that they need. It'll be a signing to make it an unnecessary them. statement. Yeah. Um, and I can see that maybe being like an Aaron Ramsey or uh, Usman Dembele or something ludicrous like that. You know, because there are plenty of players out there, as much as we have a romantic view of football, that will go, oh, you know what? I could get myself three, four hundred K a week at Newcastle. Yeah. And they're going to take it. And I think that will happen. Um, but they're, they're not going to have enough to stay up. I think 
the only safety grace for them is that they might get a few players in. Because uh, I think one team that could go down finally um, is Burnley. Yes, yeah, it does. Uh, it maybe does that's a bit like of bias on my side because they play awful football year in and year out. And all right, fine, they're effective. They don't, they keep pleading poverty. But I'm sorry, when you've been playing in the Premier League for five or six years, mating, getting £80 million uh, a year in Sky TV money, you could not plead poverty. <laughs> <laughs> You're just being tight for the sake of being tight and playing yeah. shit football. Uh, you know, it's the same with Norwich. If Norwich go down this season, I hope they don't come back because all that will happen <laughs> is that they'll come up next season and they'll just do exactly the same thing again. Spend yeah. money on some really shite players from Werder Bremen or something like that. I <laughs> <and> just <laughs> finished bottom of the table. I've got off on a bit of a tangent, but yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, I, I am going to conclude this by just giving you both uh, speculative rumours around these players. So I'll start off with yourself, Andy. Morata to Barcelona. Likely to happen or not? Um... I don't know what Barca's accountants are smoking, to be honest with you. Monopoly because, money, I think. But well, yeah. they can't register the players. So <laughs> yeah, Ferran exactly. Torres cannot be registered for Barcelona. Because uh, I know Craig mentioned, of, you know, there must be the first club that are taking out Clara to fund the transfer deal. Yeah, exactly. uh, but the La Liga are going like, I think Sid Lowe from the Guardian podcast explained it quite well. Essentially, for them to make, they're over their budget by about 250 million or something mm. like that, their wage budget. Now, essentially, what has to happen is that Barcelona can reinvest one pound out of every four that they, um, you know, they generate in sales. Yeah. So if a player is on 100, 100 grand a week, they can sign someone for 25 grand. And that's kind of how that salary cap works in practice. Um, the problem they've got is they're trying to scramble for, pl- for clubs that want them. And, you know, mm. they haven't got very many sellable, sellable assets. And, you know, players like Umtiti and, you know, Brave Freight, not that he's a sellable asset, he's just useless. <laughs> I would, would want to move them on. Yeah, they're the sort of players that go, well, I'm not going to get that same money if I go somewhere else because I'm shite. <laughs> so, and that's the sort of problem Barcelona have got. They've only just been able mm. to register a 38-year-old Danny Alves. So, exactly. you know, it would be a very Barcelona thing to get, get Morata in. They've got, they've got Ferran Torres in. They get to the end of a window and they can't register them. That would yeah. be such a Barcelona thing to happen. Yeah, definitely. And Josh, just to kind of finalise this, Eden Hazard to AC Milan. Do you think that's likely to happen? No, I can't see that happening at all. Um, no. I know he's, I know he doesn't get a lot of game time in Madrid, but I don't know. Would AC Milan realistically be able to afford his wages? I'm not entirely sure. I think sure. they're struggling to pay Latan's wages at the moment, let alone another star like Eden Hazard. But yeah, yeah. very strange yeah. one, I thought, personally. Yeah, I think that's a bit fanciful, that one. I can't see that one coming to fruition. Yeah. Right. We'll uh, kind of just do a quick weekend preview. Um, not a huge amount of games, but I have picked a number of them. And if we start off with yourself, who have Man United got this week? I think it's on Monday that you guys it's are playing. Aston, it's Aston Villa in the uh, FA Cup. Yeah, you're looking forward so, to that. No. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've also got Aston Villa in the Premier League shortly afterwards as well. <laughs> uh, you know, and you've got the whole subplot with Gerard and all that kind of stuff. Um, with United not being in the best of form as well, I, I feel that could be an awkward game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not massively looking forward to it. Yeah, so in terms of picks for myself, on Saturday, 12.30, we've got Wickham versus Sunderland. Uh, that's the big game that's being shown on Sky. So if you fancy something at 12.30, feel free to tune in to my beloved Wickham. Other than that, though, we've got a series of FA Cup games. So what I've done here is pick who I think might be the underdogs that might uh, cause a shock. So we've got Kidderminster versus Reading, uh, Borehamwood versus Wimbledon, uh, Millwall versus Palace and Mansfield versus Middlesbrough. And in uh, Bundesliga, we've got Frankfurt versus Dortmund. So Dortmund not in great form, but Frankfurt on the reverse, they're doing really well. And then on Sunday, we've got Roma versus Juventus, Inter versus Lazio, uh, Lyon versus PSG. And we've also got Villarreal versus Atletico. So uh, I don't know, Andy, if there's any other games that you like the look of over this weekend. I haven't really looked too much. I mean, I, thought, I think, but I think um, Millwall versus Palace looks quite tasty, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's yeah. going to be an entertaining game for varying reasons. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it'd be good to see if uh, Wickham could beat Sunderland. Uh, yeah, because every definitely. year that Sunderland spent in League One, I just find utterly hilarious just purely because of the uh <laughs> Sunderland till I die Netflix series <laughs> it just makes you want them to fail every single season going forward definitely and uh yeah all I can say is we seem to wind them up really nicely so their fans do not they, like they don't Wickham seem at to all. like Wickham like no it's just it's partly because you shit house your way up the league and I think well, it's a combination of COVID of... stuff yeah, there's the shithousery to the championship, but also the fact that they uh, struggle to beat us as well. So, um, yeah, it's one of those where they've got obviously Aidan McGeady still playing for them somehow. And uh, yeah, we're, we're basically a pittance in terms of wages versus Sunderland's wage bill. So, uh, yeah but we still get one over on them. So, uh, yeah, we like it that way. And Gareth Ainsworth, I'm sure, will uh, shithouse himself to uh, three points, hopefully, on Saturday. We'll wait and see. But we come to the end of the show. So without further ado, a massive thank you to Josh for appearing on the pod. Um, Josh, I believe you've been working on some big stuff with these football times as well. So uh, I'll let you plug that. But more importantly, where can the listeners and viewers find you and your work? Uh, Yeah, so we've got the Ronaldo magazine, which is uh, out in pre-sale at the moment. So if you want to read about the original Ronaldo, Brazilian one, Fat Ronnie, as I call him, uh, you can get yourself a copy. Uh, and we've also reissued the Roma magazine with some new artwork by uh, Yoni, our good friend, um, hence the Roma top. Um, but yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Josh's Butler 90 um, And yeah, a big year ahead for these football times because we've got, some, we've got another exciting club edition coming soon for a club uh, I think that a lot of people will enjoy. Ooh. Yeah, definitely recommend your magazine because uh, even for just the artwork alone, it's uh, mesmeric, shall we say. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't checked these guys out, make sure you do. 
So before we send you off, make sure you subscribe to our social media channels. So on Instagram at the Hopeless Wonder Podcast and on Twitter at Hopeless Pod. Andy, many thanks for your contributions. Hope you have a good weekend. And the same to you, Josh. Hope you enjoy your weekend. But for now, listeners and viewers, hope you enjoy the pod. And we'll see you next week with Craig. So for now, take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.